Okay, so first, I just wanted to kind of review last week, not, not to go through it all again, but to ask if there are any questions, thoughts, concerns, anything that needed clarification from anything I shared last week. And just to kind of refresh, um, my bullet points effectively were that our culture emphasizes money, but money itself is not evil. How our culture uses and views money is, but money itself is not. Um, And we always have to keep in mind that all wealth or lack of wealth is from God and that we need to guard our hearts and minds when approaching the subject of money and our thoughts towards money. And um, what to me is an immensely important subject um, because I've seen it play out in so many people's lives because of my work, but um, I really truly believe that to have a fully integrated um, functional marriage, then you really need to share finances with each other and and get input from both both sides of the table. So... um, those were kind of my, my intro to the thinking around finances 101. Um, today, I'm going to start to get into a little more of the practical, um, starting with um, that big word stewardship that we hear over and over and over again in the Bible. Um, so when thinking of stewardship, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 1 and 2 says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. When talking about stewardship, there's financial implications. But more importantly, there are spiritual implications of how we steward God's creation, how we care for what God has given us, what God has put in our lives, what, um, you, you know, our planet, everything we do, it should be with the intent and the goal of glorifying God and realizing that the world out there views everything that we do and we are his witness to the world, not just our words, but the things we do. Um, So, you know, that verse I understand is much more than simply about money, uh, but how we steward our money will impact how other people view Christ and his kingdom. As, as Christians. Um, so we are servants and stewards of all that we've been given. So that's money, our homes, our children, um, our church, uh, the gospel, our planet, our city. We're stewards of all these things as part of God's church. Um, so what is stewardship? When you open up a dictionary, because this is often what I do, I open up a dictionary and just say, hey, what does what the dictionary you know, actually define this word as? Um, it, it, there are several definitions. A person who manages another's property or financial affairs. One who administers anything as an agent of another or others. A person who has charge of a household of another. An employee who has charge of a table, um, wine, servants, etc., All those definitions basically just show somebody that is not the control person. There's somebody else above them. They're just managing, help to manage a portion of the affairs for that person over them. And obviously in our lives, that that is God. 
Um, so we're simply caretakers of what God has given us. I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I read a lot of King Arthur and Robin Hood and all those kinds of books. And, and there was these pictures of when, you know, different knights or, or nobles would go to different castles. They would always be met by the steward. And the steward would be, they'd have this big, um, massive keys attached to their hips because they had the keys to every room. They had the, the keys to the storeroom, the money room, the wine room. Everything that needed to be done was under the control of the steward, and they ran that household for the master of that house, whether that master was there or not. And that's really the picture of a steward. We are, we are given keys to many things, and how we use those things really defines how we steward. Um, so... I guess I would ask, I'll throw this question out there. When did stewardship really start in the Bible? Because it, it appears in the Bible over and over. But Yeah, Adam and Eve, they were stewards of the garden. God, God gave them creation. They were to name the animals. Um, so stewardship is deeply rooted in creation. Yes, Adam and Eve. I, I, I do want to point out, Adam and Eve together... <laughs> Where the did God tell Adam he's in charge of everything? Well, he spoke to them. He spoke to them. She was there. Oh, okay. So, so I say that because we don't want to separate one from the other. Adam was there, but Eve was his helper, and that's a picture for us in our marriages that we may be the the head steward in our house, so to speak. But our wife is there as our helper and, and an additional guide for us. Um, so God commands them to be productive, to have dominion over the earth. When you say the word dominion, your mind kind of goes to the word dominate because they're very similar. But having dominion does not mean you're dominating, you're domineering. You are in control, but you're not Dominating also has connotations of abuse. <laughs> and and um, dominion is not the equivalent of abuse of what we've been given. The earth remains God's possession. Um, Adam and Eve were his stewards. Stewards always act on the behalf of their clients. I'm sorry, their clients. <laughs> I'm talking from my other position here. Um, stewards act on behalf of their masters i.e. in their master's interest. It's not their own personal gain. They're acting in the best interest of their masters. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to slow down here a little bit because I realize that I tend to talk very quickly <laughs> and throw a lot out there, so I'm going to try to draw that back and slow down even if I don't get to everything. Um, so stewardship... Um, I think, I believe I found this definition on uh, Legionnaire, which is R.C. Sproul's site, but stewardship is about exercising our God-given dominion over his creation, reflecting the image of God in his care, responsibility, maintenance, protection, and beautification of his creation. So fast forward a little bit in the Bible, um, and to me, there's always one person that kind of steps forward as the, the um, main illustration of a good steward. Anybody want to take a stab at, at where my mind goes? Joseph. Joseph. 
Joseph was, obviously everybody knows the story, Joseph was sold into slavery. He ended up in Potiphar's house. And he became the steward of Potiphar's house. He was trusted with everything. And then there was the incident with the wife, (laughs) which, you know, he was actually being a very faithful servant and faithful steward. um, And yet Potiphar believed the other, um, the wife. So he was thrown in jail. But in jail, it doesn't say he, he was a steward, but it does say that the jailer trusted him and also put him over, over all the prisoners in the jail. And then when, once he interpreted dreams and Pharaoh found out, Pharaoh then put him over all of Egypt. And all of this to say that at every step of the way, he was a faithful reliable steward of what he was given in Potiphar's house, in the jail, in Pharaoh's household. And just if I would give a bullet point of the, um, the accomplishments of Joseph as steward of Egypt, if you remember, he stored grain in anticipation of the drought that he was, knew was coming. And then when that drought came, He sold that grain for profit. He exchanged the grain for all the livestock in Egypt. He exchanged the grain for all the land in Egypt. And that allowed him to set up a system, uh, which we would probably equate to taxation, but where um, Pharaoh actually owned all the land and 20% of everything that was produced went to Pharaoh's house. I mean, for a man working on behalf of Pharaoh. And remember, Joseph was a follower of God. Pharaoh was not. Obviously, Pharaoh found great value in Joseph, even though Joseph's core values were very different than his. Joseph brought great value to Pharaoh by being a good steward. I'll only, I'll only very briefly touch on this, but... The other, there, there were many examples of stewards, but the other ones that are really impactful to me really are the disciples. Because when Christ ascended to heaven, he left them as stewards of his message and his work on earth. And, you know, they established, I mean, you think about the work the disciples did, and we're sitting in this room <laughs> 2,000 years later because of the, the foundation that they helped set. So what are some of the traits of a good steward? And so just so you know, as I, I'm going to go through these things and then I'm going to give some, some very practical things towards the back end of this, of things that I've seen from, from my work and my career. So, so some of the traits of a good steward. A good steward is trustworthy. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I I read this earlier. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be faithful. They are trustworthy to their masters. Wise. They are wise. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And I'm going to... At the risk of beating a bit of a dead horse here, because I keep emphasizing how important it is to be united in your marriage, Um, but 
as leaders and co-stewards of the house, you need to be trustworthy with each other. You need to be wise in your dealings with each other. There's great value in me sharing things with Carmela when I'm making, when we're making decisions. Um, she provides insights that I miss at times. Um, some of the, the value that a financial advisor, which is what I do in my <laughs> day-to-day life, bring to people is not so much that I'm brilliant and know everything. It's sometimes you just look at things and you see them differently than what other people do because your experiences and, and what you've already dealt with in your life. Carmela brings experiences and insights that I frankly don't have. I mean, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? So she looks at everything differently than I do, and that's a good compliment to have in your marriage. Um, she, yes. Sure. The trustworthy and wise. Yep. Yep. So the one I uh, gave about being trustworthy is this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, etc. That's from 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 1 and 2. And then that one about looking carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise is Ephesians 5, 15. Here's the other amazing thing about your spouse. They have a very vested interest in your success. (laughs) Your wife doesn't want you to fail. They want you to succeed. That's and I'm I'm I apologize if I'm doing this all from kind of the male perspective, but your spouse has a vested interest in you being successful in your endeavors and in you doing the right thing before God. Um, And ultimately, in sharing those things, it builds a better, more fulfilling unity in marriage. I, a good steward is generous. I, I can't tell you the number of verses I went through the, in the Bible that talked about generosity um, as a trait of stewardship. So 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A steward is grateful, and really this is giving credit where credit is due. <laughs> Deuteronomy eight eleven and 12, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It's all from him. And we always have to remember that and be grateful to him. And that doesn't mean be grateful only if we have a lot. (laughs) It is we are grateful to him because he sustains us. He is our life giver. He is our provider. Whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17. This is an interesting one that people may not necessarily think of. 
about being a good steward. But we're instructed not to chase money. Okay, there's a lot of instruction about building for the future and how to, and and I'm going to get into these things next week, um, but there's a lot of scripture about how we should save, how we should build, how we should build a legacy. Um, But at the same time, we don't chase money. Good stewards do not chase money for the sake of chasing money. And that was not an implication that I'm a good steward or better than anybody else. It was just a slip of the tongue. Um, But a good steward does not chase money. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an evil toward heaven. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. It is God blesses us with wealth and just as quickly it can be gone. So if, if our goal is wealth, we will always be disappointed. If our goal is God's goal, we will be satisfied. We will be content. And finally, another thing people probably don't think much about with um, stewardship. But over and over again, I found that stewards are hardworking. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, Colossians 3.23. So what are some of the visible signs when, when people are looking at us? What are some of the visible signs we should exhibit that they can see um, us being good stewards? Diligent workers, so hard workers, that last one I just mentioned. Um, we don't always think about how hard we work in the context of stewardship. But even our jobs come from God. And if we're to do all to his glory, that includes our jobs, even the parts we don't like. I get up every morning and I have a list of what's called trade reviews. So people that I supervise and they, all their paperwork and everything has to come through me. And I have to spend a few hours just going through all these trade reviews and it is so boring <laughs> but it's my job and there are aspects of my job that I absolutely love um, but regardless it is my job to do that to the best of my ability and fulfill that work requirement the Bible praises diligence and obviously the Bible tells us to do all things as unto the Lord The what? The second last one. Of which? The trade. The second last trade of a good steward. Does not chase money? Okay. Yep. And then hardworking. So part of the reason that I think it's so important to be hardworking and diligent in whatever job God has given you is that it's such a witness to others. The world... The world may be at war with Christians and our belief system, but employers out there still recognize people that work hard and are honest. And whether they want to attribute it to God's calling on our lives or not, they recognize and reward those things because they need those people. I, I, with Carmela's permission, I'm going to use the example of her daughter as a hard worker. Um, Emma, a few years ago, got a job at Fajita Grill. And 
for the most part, from what I understand, the kids down there were not hard workers. They showed up to get a paycheck. And Emma is a hard worker. And so she went to work. She became a very reliable person for them. And I, I understand this is fajita grill, so it's not you know a top-notch career. But she still did it to the best of her ability. And through that, she received promotions. They began to rely on her. They gave her a ridiculous number of hours so that as a teen girl, she was making a pretty good amount of money for a high school student because they recognized the hard work and diligence that she took to the job every day. Employers recognize those things. So when we say blessings from God, we can't just assume that, you know, a bucket of money is going to drop in our lap. But her hard work and diligence was rewarded by God, <laughs> I believe, to give her more hours and raises and, and a higher position in that little shop down there. The world does recognize and reward godly attributes, even as they hate God himself. Uh, another visible sign of a good steward is they budget and plan. There is a lot in the Bible about budgeting and planning for the future, not to accumulate your own wealth for selfish desires, but as a sign of wisdom and good stewardship. For which of you, and I'm sorry, I didn't write down my verse on this one, so I apologize, but you may know, you can tell me. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 14, around 31 to 31. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Luke 14, 30, 31, someplace in there. <laughs> I think it's 31 31. Okay. So, yeah, but that's, that's about... Planning. Jesus is using that as an illustration that, you know, somebody with wisdom is going to plan for whatever they're going to be doing. They don't just start it and, and wing it. Or Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. It's a picture of preparing for a future an unsure future, and gathering the things that you may need for whatever drought is coming. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty, Proverbs 21.5. I'm going to get into saving and debt next week in the talk um, and talk about good ways to save bad ways to save, um, the problems with debt. I'm going to talk about all that next week. But suffice it to say that um, a well-laid plan, in my business, there, there's something we always say, which is planning to fail is failing, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. Like if you don't have a plan, chances are you're going to fail at whatever you're doing because you don't have a goal, you don't have a roadmap to get wherever you're going. Uh, 
Another thing that's a sign of a good steward, they seek to understand what they are doing. They seek knowledge and understanding and wisdom. An intelligent ear acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverb eighteen fifteen. And and this one's when I shared this with Carmela, she was you know, I think this one really stuck out to her, but this is, I'll equate this to knowing what's going on under your own roof and understanding your finances, understanding, not investing in things if you don't understand it, not paying for things if you don't understand what you're paying for, not getting into debts that you don't understand, not taking on things that you don't understand. Have an understanding. You don't have to know every intricate detail but you need to have a fundamental understanding of whatever you are doing um, with what God has given you. Proverbs 27, 23, and 24 says, Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? Know what you're doing. <laughs> have a basic understanding. So I'm going to come to the part here where I want to give you two contrasting examples of real-life situations that I've dealt with. Um, they're, they're clients of mine. And to kind of set the table, both of these people worked in the exact same company in the exact same department. So that's to say their incomes were effectively, you know, they were the same incomes. They were effectively identical incomes that they had their entire careers. Okay, same company, same department, everything. Okay. The first one, when I met her, was a single lady. Um, She'd worked there for 40 years. And when I met with her, she was hoping to retire, but couldn't retire and couldn't understand why. Okay. So as I'm sitting with her and going through a budget, it became insanely evident that she just kind of you know, she had decent income. She bought what she wanted to buy. She didn't really plan for the future. And, you know, here she is, early 60s, and she has $30,000 of credit card debt. So she's got, she's got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars saved, but $30,000 of credit card. Now, if you don't understand how debt and returns offset each other, the debt payment on a credit card just to keep up with the interest is far more than what hundreds of thousands is going to generate on a safe return in order to make sure your assets last. Okay. That's a very basic, just a basic thing for you. So she had this massive amount of debt, um, and, and, you know, really couldn't make improvements to her house, couldn't really do much, couldn't afford a new car, even though she'd worked all these years and really couldn't retire. Um, and then as I'm digging more deeply into things, and she kind of did everything herself, um, and as I'm digging into things more deeply, I, I asked her about life insurance, and she, she hands me over this policy and, and said, well, what's this? And Well, it's a life insurance policy, okay? You pay $300 a month for this life insurance policy. Um, why do you have life insurance? I don't know. I was told I needed it. You're single. You don't have any kids. You have no beneficiaries. Why do you need life insurance? 
The guy came and told me I needed it. Understand what you're doing. It's just basic understanding of what you're doing, but people don't understand. They get into things they don't understand. And so my, my argument here is that we cannot steward what God has given us well if we don't understand what we're doing. So her story did end well, by the way. Um, that, that ridiculous life insurance policy, we canceled it. She pulled out $28,000 of cash value from a policy she never needed and paid off her credit cards and retired. Um, but, you know, she understood what she was doing after I got done with her. Um, but I want to contrast that with another couple who are also clients. Husband and wife raised four kids, single-income family. So, so, again, this woman who was single had the income that he had his entire life, except he raised four kids and supported a wife, and she only lived on her own. Okay, He and his wife, every time we meet, we meet together. His wife asks tons of questions. They're both very diligent in planning together, doing everything together. They have retired, <laughs> owning three homes. Um, they, they've sold two of them because they, they, they were investment properties. They've sold two of them in retirement. Um, but, but on the exact same income, two people that planned their futures together and they lived in their means, did well, but they had a plan. They have, um, I think at this point, they have about five times the amount of money with me that that other client does. And their incomes were exactly the same their whole lives. Okay. That's the power of planning and being diligent and, and caring for what's been given to you. Okay, so I, I just, I say that because when I, when I talk about these things with stewardship and understanding and having knowledge and planning for the future, these people haven't done anything wrong because they have so much more money than she does at this point. They planned and saved and Goodness, I wish they were Christian because they're a wonderful couple, but they just, they took biblical principles and applied them to their lives without even knowing it, and it paid dividends immensely for them, okay? So, how should a Christian budget? So, this is, this is getting into the more functional part of what I go through with people, but... What is the first thing a Christian should do with their money? Tithe. Tithe. Okay. When laying out a budget, I basically have two different things I do with people, with Christian people. And I'm sorry I have to say it this way, but the reality is I work in a world that not all the Christian are people, and some people don't want anything to do with tithing. That's just the reality of the world we live in. But I'm able to do one type of budget with a Christian family and another type with non-Christian families. Um, the Christian family, you know, we always have conversation about tithing. And so tithing is the first priority of our finances as a Christian. Um, a tithe quite literally means a tenth. We tithe out of obedience and faith. As we are obedient, and it's sometimes hard to fathom this, but as we are obedient, God is faithful to change our hearts from that initial reluctance in handing over 
our hard-earned money um, to a joy that comes with it. And, and I equate it to when I first came to this church and there was a reluctance in me to come here because I did not grow up in a church that sang only psalms and did not have any instrumentation. I knew I needed to be here as opposed to other places, but that was a challenge for me coming here. But over the years I've been here, that's grown from a challenge to something I look forward to. I know if I step in and we've had a little tiff for some reason, the moment the Psalter gets opened up and we have to start singing God's words back to him, it changes your heart. You can't help it. it, It's when you are acting in his ways, it changes your heart. So as we are obedient, God is faithful to change our hearts from reluctance to joy in giving. Um, The Old Testament precedent for this, it literally means a tenth. Um, We also, we discussed this this morning, but there is an instance where Cain and Abel came forward and gave God an offering. That was not actually a tithe. that was their offering, their offering of their first fruits. And then later on in Genesis, Abraham um, defeats, um, well, the kings in, at, at Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom. And out of his spoils, he gave Melchizedek 10% of, of all the spoils. Okay, that was the first instance of tithing in the Bible. And then later on, we see where God instructs them in Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc., to tithe. Okay. The tithe was instituted officially to support the Levites because they didn't have a tribal allocation of land, and the Levites were the priests of the nation. Um, They were set apart to care for the spiritual and educational responsibilities of the nation. So not having a a vocation, so to speak, other than the, the spiritual care of the nation, it was on the nation to support them, and that tithe would go to them. Under the, the New Testament, that money goes to support the church and the work that the church does. Now, there are many people, I may be a little controversial with saying this, but there are a lot of people that argue that, well, tithing is an Old Testament thing, not a New Testament thing. So we can really just give what we want, and as long as we feel okay about it, that's what matters. I might argue that point. First, um, in Malachi 3, 8 through 10, it says, and this is Old Testament precedent, but I'll get to the New Testament in a minute. When we fail to tithe, we are robbing God. It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God, God literally tells the nation that if they don't bring him their tithe, they are robbing him. <laughs> so fast forward to the New Testament, because many would kind of wash away that scripture and say, well, we're, we're under a new covenant, you know, the, we're in the New Testament now, it's different. And there's a couple of specific situations that will often be used as their defense of that position. 
The first one is in Matthew 23. If you remember, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees and he criticizes them and equates the criticism to their tithing. I think it's really important to point out that Jesus did not criticize the fact that they were tithing. He criticized them and said, you should pay as much attention to justice, mercy, and faith as you do to tithing. He doesn't say you shouldn't be tithing or you're wasting your time tithing or I don't care about your tithing. He's saying you need to pay as much attention to my other directions as you do to my tithing. Okay. The second one that people often reference is 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where Paul tells us not to give begrudgingly. Okay. But I would challenge anyone to find any place in the New Testament that says we no longer have to tithe. The Bible does not say that. And so if you take tithe at its very literal sense of the word of a tenth, (laughs) then our tithe, our tenth, goes to God. So it kind of leaves us, at least in my heart, this is my conviction, and I'm sharing my conviction with you, but this leaves me with a need to tithe. Um, So how do we tithe? Tithe is 10%. But it is important to point out that Scripture also puts an emphasis on alms and additional offerings. Um, alms, obviously, are an additional amount that we can give to, you know, whatever works to support the poor, the needy, whatever works the church need help with or other organizations. So we should always diligently consider how, where, and when we can give above and beyond our tithe but I do believe our our tithe belongs to the local church because that is the body of believers we are supporting. That is the building and the ministry we are part of in this family. Um, The other thing to consider with tithing is that there is often this correlation between first fruits and tithing, okay? First fruits is obviously the first, just like what it sounds, the first of what we have Tithing is that 10%. So in my very systematic mathematical brain, I think first fruits and 10%. So the first 10% of everything I have goes to God. And then I think, well, you know, I have 1099 income and I have W-2 income, i.e. I have some self-employed income and I have some employee income. My employee income, you know, it says I make this much, but my paycheck's actually this much because, you know, Uncle Sam takes out all his money. <laughs> but I have to examine that in my own mind and realize that the first fruits of what I receive are that, it is that gross number before taxes are taken out. Yes, we are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We have to pay those taxes. But the first fruit really is everything that is on my tax return at the end of the year. <laughs> you know, They have that, this is your income, these are the taxes that were removed, and this is your adjusted. I, I struggle with the concept that I would give what the adjusted number is. I don't, I, and again, this is me, but I always encourage people that um, really consider first fruits and tithing instead of, you know, removing a whole bunch so you can give less tithe and not feel it as much in your budget. So, 
the next thing. So that, that I kind of view as the overarching first point of a budget. And then I start to get into other things with clients, okay? And these, these may be more practical. They're not necessarily things the Bible talks about, um, but they're things that maybe me saying this will jog a discussion so that you can, you know, take a different point of view on your budgets, whatever they may be. So when I go through budgets with people, I'd always talk to them about hard, te- hard expenses, flexible expenses, and soft expenses, I consider hard expenses anything you have to pay that you cannot, you can't live without, right? So if you have your house paid off, you can, you can live without a mortgage payment. That's great. But if you don't, you have to pay your mortgage or else you're going to be homeless, right? That's a hard expense. You don't have a choice. You got to pay that every month. Your taxes, you really don't have much of a choice. You have to pay your taxes. Um, regardless of what your income is, you've got your taxes, um, I'm pretty sure looking outside that none of us want to forego paying our utility bill um, because it gets pretty cold in a hurry. So to me, that's also a hard expense. Like when I'm going through budget, I, I always look at these things and say, you know, we have no wiggle room in those areas. Those are, those are set. We ha- you have to pay those things. So where are other areas in a budget that you could possibly save? Then there are what I call flexible expenses. These are things that in some way, shape, or form, you're going to have to pay, but perhaps you're overpaying or not understanding what you're paying, and you can make some changes there. Um, there's always this dance that goes um, with vehicles around here of, should I buy a new vehicle or continue to pay the rusty car bill repairs? That's something that can be flexible. You need to analyze your own budget and see if your vehicle's gotten to the point where the repairs outstrip the, <laughs> the condition, <laughs> the cost of buying a, a new-to-you vehicle, okay? So those are kind of flexible things. I've had, um, I've had a lot of conversations with people, you know, they'll buy like a Ram 2500 or something, and I'll be like, you work in an office job in Syracuse. Why do you need that truck? You know, why are you paying $750 a month for your truck payment? I just like the truck. <laughs> like, well, okay, I understand, but, and, and that is completely your choice. You know, I'm not going to spite you for paying that much, but you're talking to me about wanting to retire at a certain age, and you're blowing money on a, a truck that really is above your means. So for what purpose? For what purpose? So when we're looking at purchases and the costs of things, it's really a good idea to think about the longer-term implications of what that means to you, your family, and their future. Um, Likewise, there are people who will buy a junky car in the name of saving money, but then they spend half their lives repairing the car or having to do work or being concerned that their car is not going to get from point A to point B if they need to go someplace beyond, you know, Fulton. Um, so, you know, there's also a cost there. So you really need to weigh the, the, the cost and rewards of these things and figure out a way to make it work within your budget. Another big one that people don't even realize how much money they spend on is food. Food is expensive. 
but food doesn't have to be as expensive as many of my clients end up making it. <laughs> so we always have a discussion about it, it. It's almost comical at times because I can bet if I'm going into an empty nester's home that their food budget is higher than the food budget of a home that has two or three kids in it because we don't want to cook anymore. So we go out to eat every night and it just, it racks up and they don't even think about it. It's just what they do. And that's great. But if you want to live and retire in the way you would like to live and retire, that's not always the best choice. And, and these are just, so, you know, these are kind of blanket statements I'm making to help you guys think perhaps about some of the things in your own budgets. Um, Finally, the things I consider soft expenses. Oh, man. So I'm going to give you one more little story. So uh, I think it was 2011. I met with a single lady. Um, She'd been through a divorce. She was working two jobs um, as a nurse had zero retirement savings and could not figure out what was going on. So we literally, together, she and I went through about six months of bank statements. And I kept highlighting these things and saying, you know, what's this? What's this? And what's this? And what's this? And what's this? And come to find out, (laughs) most of them were at Walmart she and her kids would go to Walmart and she had an impossible time saying no to her kids because they'd been through a divorce. She felt guilty and she was just buying them things left and right. And again, I'm telling you this stuff because I don't necessarily think that's a problem here, but this is how emotions get tied in with finances, bad decisions, lack of wisdom, lack of understanding of how it's affecting things all play into being a good steward or not. So push comes to shove, we, you know, we got her on a much tighter budget and, you know, she spent many years saving at this point. She's still not in a position to retire because she didn't start saving till she was 49 and, and she just couldn't. She still had to support her kids and the house and all of that. But she is in a much better position now than she was then. But it was simply just going through her own things and understanding, having a budget and understanding what was being spent when and where and how. Okay? So those are really the points I wanted to kind of hit today. Next week, I'm going to talk about um, planning for the future, um, how to save in a bib- from a biblical standpoint, and debt. We are in a society that it's almost impossible not to have some sort of debt. That is, that is the foundation of our society is debt to buy a house, debt to buy a car, debt to do just about anything functional in life. Um, so the Bible talks a lot about staying out of debt, um, which is a near impossibility, but there are ways to handle debt differently than some people think about that that can have great implications on your family and financial futures. So any thoughts, questions? Yes, sir.
On the tithing issue, I know I've heard it argued that uh, we don't tithe today because we don't have Levites. And it, you know, the Levites, their task was twofold, like you mentioned. It mm -hmm. was to offer sacrifices in the temple and to uh, teach the law to the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, my response to that is always, yeah, we don't have Levites, we have pastors. Right. Who right. give up their, any, their opportunities to make money in order to, uh, you know, guard the sacraments and also uh, teach. Yes. So we don't call our pastors priests. Right. It's right to not call them that. Right. But since they do the same thing, and I think Paul in one of his letters to the Corinthians makes that correlation between uh, missionaries, i.e. church planters or mm -hmm. teaching elders, mm -hmm. and... The, um, he does. I pulled that. I pulled that reference out, but there is a reference to storing up your tithe, so that the next time I come around, we can collect it and continue our work. <laughs> I mean, if that's not a good indication that the New Testament church should still be tithing as before, I don't know what would be. What passage? I forget exactly where it is. I'd have to look it up. But Mike, I think in that particular thing, he was. Okay. 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 But it just stands to reason to me, understanding that the Old and New Testaments are not different covenants; they're different administrations of the same covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. That if you have the priests doing a task and being and the time going to them for doing that work. Mm -hmm. And then you have pastors doing the exact same work right. in the church. Well, then, then the tithe should go to that. Right. Right. I completely agree. <laughs> so. Yes, sir. Um, again, on tithing, there's another element that uh, that I've run into personally. Mm -hmm. And I just bring this up. Is I've, I've talked to people... Uh, other Christians about tithing, and they go, "You got to be crazy! Those idiots that administer my church can't handle money as well as I can. So why should I give them money? I can give it directly to a missionary. Mm -hmm. Why should I give them money? Because I see the way they administer the church I go to, mm -hmm. and and so you got to have." good leadership in a church to inspire people that you know, give people the confidence that when they tithe it's going to, to good things. You, you can have because I mean I've had people tell me this flat out. No. I'd have two I'd have two possible responses to that. Number one the Bible doesn't say to obey your Leaders and rulers, if you like them and agree with everything you do, yeah, <laughs> the Bible just calls. I'm for not it. saying they're right. Um, I'm saying that they do. And, and number two, if you if you believe the leaders of your church are that bad, why don't you come to the RP? <laughs> because because the answer to that is because I go to church to bang my guitar. Yes. I don't want to hear a bunch of theology. Stuff. Right, right. Jonathan, hold on.
caretaker in charge of things. Um, that's uh, what is a story. Traits of a good story. Don't show workers. They budget and plan. They seek understanding. How should a Christian budget things is our priority. Plan for the future. Budget of analysts. That get right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Tithing and and budgeting and planning for the future. Andy. I'm going to be careful here. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, first off, I would, I, would, I would say that when you tithe, the tithe belongs to God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And the tithe, you are not tithing to the church. Mm-hmm. You are tithing to God. Right. Your responsibility as, a, as an individual member of the church in the tithe ends when you tithe. Mm-hmm. And if you want to poke your nose into something... It's none of your business what the church does with the money. That is the deacon's responsibility, oversaw by the elders, mm-hmm. how to handle the Lord's time. Mm-hmm. So this business when somebody says, uh, you know, the, the officers in the church can't handle the money, the proper response to him is to gently shut up and get this right focus. One of the interesting things I find about that is that I've been part of different churches and every single one in some way, shape or form publishes a budget and how money was spent throughout the year. And most churches vote on approving that budget or not approving that. So the argument of they don't handle the money well, well, you voted on it. Your church passed it. <laughs> so. But there's another point is, is the church budget is not approved by the congregation. Mm-hmm. Well, some churches it is. Church is set by the right, but some churches it actually is. So churches like what well, he's talking about, it actually is. Yes. Daniel. Well, I guess two things. One, I, I had to Steve's point. There, there are some churches that grossly mismanage money, and mm-hmm. some of them are Jim Jones, and some of them are are, um, you know, on the other side of the governmental power spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, another point on some some graph, uh, like the Catholic Church, and, and there's like gross, I, I, I don't know if I want to call this management, but there's they're spending money on stuff that I think a lot of the congregation wouldn't agree with them spending a whole bunch of money mm-hmm. on. And so when I was in Catholic Church, it was very normal for you to give five bucks. Five bucks every week. That's mm-hmm. it. Because they have enough money. Like, <laughs> right? And, sure. and so, right, there's marble everywhere. And, um, and so, they have a huge church, whatever. So, um, I guess that's kind of the Steve's point. And, and if, if they did act more like here, and especially if they talked more in, in, a, in a heart of trying to understand what the Bible's actually saying, I think that would inspire more people to. Yeah, I would. Tithe. So my answer to that, not that you're even looking for an answer, but my answer to that is that um, when we think about the temple that was built by David, it was beautiful and it was covered in gold. But the heart of the people worshiping there were much different than the heart of what's occurring in the Catholic Church these days. So it's not so much about the 
the, the beautification of the building as it is with, is this really God's work at this point? Yes. And so. maybe some of it has to do with what was in their heart when they were, when they were building the two different buildings. Because mm-hmm. um, that original uh, um, uh, definition or, or explanation of stewardship that I read actually talked about beautification of God's world. Um, and I found that very interesting coming from R.C. Sproul that, you know, stewardship is also about beautification of God's world, not just leaving it to rot and wither and decay, but beautif- beautification of what we have. So. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, when I came here, and, and even now, even after all your good arguments and everything about tithing, um, considering certain passages in the New Testament, like about cheerfully giving, mm-hmm. what what not our compulsion and give cheerfully and and also that a pastor that's good should receive a double honor mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I took the context to be that you should that the same that you should pay your pastors um, just like you would feed an ox even an ox that's working gets paid pay your pastors and we'll so put them out to pasture and let them eat some grass yes to pay the pastors and therefore obviously do tithe uh, to God to the church and um, but I didn't know if the 10% carried over I guess tithe, to give to the church whether it be a tithe or not, right? and so I'm not I'm not going to try to upset the apple cart, and Mm -hmm. at the same time I'm not going to say that I uh, am fully convicted or convinced that that we are still under compulsion uh, to give 10% mm-hmm. or else it's a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... But, but can I comment? Yes, go yes, please do. <laughs> I think we do have to be careful. Yes. Because our denomination does not require a tithe. Mm-hmm. If you look at no, if you look, if you look at the things that you commit yourself to when you join this church, you don't commit yourself to a tithe. Yep. It's it's couched. Your giving is couched in a very general language mm-hmm. that you will give to the Lord according as He has prospered you. Mm-hmm. You can read that a lot of different ways. All right. I happen to personally believe that the Lord wants us to tithe, mm-hmm. and so I'm very open about my convictions about that. But please understand, I am not speaking for the church when I say right. The conviction that, so comma, and, yes. and I guess I have an A and a B here, and sorry if that's too long, but, but part A is, when I came to this 